0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The first house that I think I could ever remember living in, we've lived in many houses as a family of six growing up um, with my father moving around for ministry. The first house that I really have memories of was a house at the end of a road It was actually on a circle, Victor Circle, and um, my three siblings and I could ride our bikes and play actually in the street without being unsafe. And I even remember playing with this whole gaggle of children. My best friend and I were on the younger fringe of the gaggle, and so I remember having to be put to bed while it was still light out and hearing the bigger kids playing in the street um, and not liking that. Um, But one of my favorite things about those memories and those years, one of my favorite things to do with that whole group of children was to play hide and seek. We would use all of the yards of all of the houses in the whole circle. And um, so it was a big field playing field and I was really good at hiding I would find, like, the best hiding places. And I usually won the game. I was usually stuck there waiting for a really long time. Sometimes I would, um, I would, uh, my own weakness would mean that I had to go take a comfort break in one of the houses. But I would stay there for a really long time. If that wasn't the reason why I left my hiding spot, I would get to hear those final words marking the end of the game. Come out, come out, wherever you are. So I loved hide-and-seek. And I find in this passage from Mark 7, that's our gospel lesson for today, there is a beautifully confusing aspect to it um, that could only be described as a game of hide and seek with Jesus himself. If you have your bulletin and the passage is written right there, if you want to open your Bible to Mark chapter 7, you'll see in, at the very beginning... Right there, as things open up, we find in verse 24 that Jesus did not want anyone to know that he was in a house in Tyre and Sidon, yet he couldn't be hidden. A mother in desperate need finds him out, entering even the house where he was staying. And rather than healing her immediately, Jesus pulls back. She inclines in faith and great humility. And then uh, Jesus casts the demon out of her daughter, even while he's not present with the daughter. But he hide. He had been hidden. And in the second part of the passage, Jesus heals that deaf and mute man. But he tells him and those watching to tell no one about what he'd done. Mark records it so beautifully. The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Good news cannot be kept secret. My sister learned this the hard way because my father is also a pastor, and my father... once, uh, he's very good at keeping bad news secret and preserving people's confidentiality, but he has a really hard time keeping good news secret. And she told him, maybe it was her second or third child, she would, told him the good news that she was expecting and had meant for that good news to remain secret for a little bit longer. And lo and behold, the next Sunday, the entire congregation knew that he would once again become a grandfather. <laughs> so she learned the hard way. Good news cannot be kept secret. And so too so too. Here with Jesus. The good news about Jesus cannot be kept secret. So why does it seem then that Jesus is hiding? Why would he even try to hide when he is clearly so bad at it? Well, two observations right here within today's passage will shed light on the answer. First, the Gentile woman recognizes Jesus as someone with spiritual authority. In Matthew's accounts of this same event in chapter 15 of Matthew, she calls Jesus. Son of David, great David's greater son, the awaited Messiah. Her incredible statement of faith um, there, um, where she acknowledges that Jesus has priority to lead and serve the Jewish people, is one that's incredible because she believes that he also has a universal power um, that could apply to her as well. She believes that even just a crumb of this power of Jesus would be enough to heal her daughter. Essentially, she shows that she believes Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And the second clue, uh, that was the first clue, the second clue is there present in the second half of the passage, where Mark um, lays a little um, point here for anyone in his original audience who would have read the Greek Old Testament, which would have been everyone hearing him that first time. They would have known their Bible. Their Bible would have been the Old Testament, and they would have heard it in Greek. Um, and so when Mark describes the deaf and mute man right there, he uses a word that's found nowhere else in the New Testament, and that's not familiar in other settings either. It's only found really in the Old, um, Old Testament Greek translation of Isaiah 35, and that word is mogilalos. Um, which is a word for, I just like the word, which is why I wanted to say it, forgive me. Um, Mogilalos is a word for a man or someone with a speech impediment. And it's found only there in Isaiah 35, which happens to have been our first lesson for today. Um, Isaiah 35 is a prophecy proclaiming some of the wonderful things that will happen when God visited, would visit his people again by sending the Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind would be opened. Then the ears of the deaf would be unstopped. And here it is. Then the tongue of the mute, the mogilalos, would sing for joy. Jesus is the Messiah that Israel was waiting and longing for. Again, why not make sure all the world knew? Well, we find out, we might hear this next week, in Mark's next chapter when, G, when Peter, his disciple, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, Jesus strictly charges him to tell no one about him. What is the deal? Well, it turns, turns out that the Jewish people of the first century had a lot of emotional baggage. They had a lot of projection and misinformation surrounding who the Messiah would be and what he would do. They believed that... The Messiah, or translated the Christ, would establish an earthly united kingdom of David by kicking the Romans out of Palestine. They hoped that Israel would be finally reestablished as a world power. And what that meant, they thought, would be that all of the nations of the whole known world would bring tribute to them read money, um, and that they would um, serve them, that they would have power and wealth um, and safety and security and a a nice sense of identity. So they were hoping for all of these things, Um, and we even know that almost all of Jesus's first followers hoped for that kind of worldly victory, even at the beginning of chapter, uh, chapter one in Acts when Jesus is um, about to ascend into heaven, his disciples ask him, Lord, now, now, when will you bring the kingdom? When is it going to happen? When is this um, wonderful restoration going to happen? And Jesus doesn't even respond. He just tells, gives them other instructions because they clearly don't understand yet. And they wouldn't understand until the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. All of those first century Jewish believers and non-believers in Jesus wanted a victorious Jesus. They wanted a bright, shiny, powerful Jesus, a superhero that they could look up to and emulate. They wanted a Messiah, yes, who was human, not, not divine, certainly, but merely a great man, because if he was a great man, then maybe he could inspire them in their own striving for greatness. If he did it, then so can I. My sister has a cute saying um, that she says when she really likes or admires someone, believe it or not, she says, Oh, he's so amazing, I just want to put him in my pocket. She'll say that about um, literary figures, modern stars, um, anything. She'll say it about anyone, and she went through a phase where she said that about anyone that she really liked. I want to put them in my pocket. Like the crowds following Jesus, we too want to put Jesus in in our pocket. We want to settle for a controllable Jesus, an action figure that we can pull out when we think we need him, and then put him right back in our pocket. Well, when we relegate Jesus to this diminished role in our lives, then we are, we are underestimating uh, who he is, and we're also underestimating the depth of the human problem. When we do this, we deny the reality of our own personal problems because if our problem as fallen human beings is merely situational or external, if just my circumstances would change or just if so-and-so would do things a little bit differently, then everything would be better. Or we say, yes, it is internal, um, but it's just a small problem. It's a mild problem. It's going to get better. I'm going to help make it better. A little bit of prayer, a little bit of this, a little bit of that is going to do um, wonders for me a little bit of Jesus here and there. So if all we need is to become slightly better people, we'll tell ourselves, well, all we need are a few Sundays here and there, a 15-minute morning devotional every day. We'll relegate Jesus just to those days and hours and segments of our schedule. We'll put Jesus right there in our pocket, and all will be well. But the reality is that our sin problem is all pervasive. It affects everything every aspect of our being. It affects every moment of every day. The great Martin Luther, who had so much wisdom, all of those years of study, the power of the Holy Spirit, such a great theologian, a, a, a trailblazer with regard to the Reformation, who's so wise and so accomplished, but his last known written words were, we are all beggars this is true. In Mark 7, the Syrophoenician woman falls at Jesus' feet and begs him to free her daughter from the grip of evil. The friends of the mute and deaf man beg Jesus to lay their hands on him. These people are realistic, both about the depth of their own need and also about the height of Jesus' ability. They had suffered much. Suffering strips us of our pride and our pretense. Suffering shows us how little control we actually have over our lives. And until suffering brings us to that place of reality about the depth of our need, we'll continue to control and misunderstand Jesus. Throughout his earthly ministry, those who approached Jesus without a sense of their need ended up trying to kill him. We see this in Jesus' first sermon ever in his hometown at Nazareth, told in Luke chapter 4, when the people who had known Jesus since he was a little boy attempted to throw him off a cliff, all because his messianic claim did not match their own limited and selfish hopes. We find it again in John chapter 8 during the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem when a crowd tries to stone Jesus for saying, Uh, What's true? That he existed before Abraham. Jesus slips through their grasp both times simply because the hour of his death had not yet come. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life at the hour foreordained by the Father. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. When Pontius Pilate bullied Jesus, saying he had no authority to release, or, or saying he had the authority to release or crucify him, Jesus uh, responded, "You wouldn't have any over. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above." Perhaps Jesus wanted to hide himself because he knew that the misguided crowds were not ready to receive the truth about Jesus or the truth about themselves. They would have tried to make him a king by force, the kind of king that their limited minds perceived that they needed. When he proclaimed a different kind of kingship, which is what he would do, a kingship of one who would suffer and die, they hated him for it, and we would have too. They rejected and killed him. And so maybe keeping his messianic identity hidden for as long as possible shows that Jesus is ultimately in control. He's the Messiah. He's also the Son of God. He is the one who controls how he is revealed and received. Jesus' life would not be taken from him by force. He would lay it down voluntarily at the right time. Well, for us today, when sin and suffering overwhelm us, when we feel like we're not living our best life now, when Jesus seems hidden from us, Is it possible that he is actually right there, closer than ever to you? In that place of distance, when I find myself right there, I start to scramble. I start to look for something to do. I start to think, well, if I just do this, then maybe God will do that. If I just pray this way, then he'll do this. If I just um, study my Bible in just this way, then God will do this for me. But these moments, um, these moments of our lives that contain all of these emotions of suffering, the emotions we try to resist, fear, anger, envy, pride, sadness, longing, loneliness, even boredom. Those moments we resist are actually the moments where God is at work in us, showing us our need for him. There is nothing to do in these moments but to not do, simply to surrender at the feet of Jesus. He is so much more powerful than we allow him to be, a Messiah beyond our control, even while he is the crucified one who has plumbed the depths of human sin, suffering, and death. There, at the cross, we find God hidden from human reason and human control. As St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let us pray. Father, in our darkest moments of sin and suffering, we wonder, how could you allow this to happen? What are you doing? Where is Jesus in this moment? And so we ask, Give us eyes to see ourselves in all our deep need for you. Help us to trust your power and your love for us in Jesus. Would you turn all our bad news into good news in light of your work on our behalf? Please bring life where there is death and victory in spite of seeming defeat. In Jesus' name, amen.